welcome to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. We are the Soto Brothers. I am Samuel Soto, doctor of physical therapy. And I am Joseph Soto, physician. Together, we are board-certified medical providers who specialize in internal medicine and physical therapy. Our mission is to promote longevity, health span, and wellness in order to prevent illness and injury so we can optimize the human experience. Any information on diseases and treatments available at this channel is intended for general guidance only and must never be considered a substitute for advice provided by a doctor or other qualified healthcare professional. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare professional with questions you may have regarding your medical condition. Hello, 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 and welcome to the second episode of the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast. In this episode, we're going to be talking about type 2 diabetes. Don't always trust what you see. Even salt looks like sugar. What's going on, Joseph? How are you doing today? I'm good. I'm good. Excited to be doing the second episode. I think the first episode was a hit. And I'm excited to actually start talking about real content today. Yeah. So again, like I said, we're going to be talking about diabetes, uh, the epidemic in America. And uh, Joseph, you can uh, start it up and uh, tell us a little bit about uh, diabetes. Sure. So let's face it, everyone. We all know someone who has diabetes, and we've seen those terrible commercials marketing treatments. According to the National Diabetes Statistical Report from 2018, which is part of the CDC, around 8.2% of Americans were diagnosed with type 2 diabetes across all age groups, races, and genders. The incidence or number of new cases has also been increasing in the past several decades, especially among children. However, this number does not include people who are pre-diabetic or who are insulin resistant. When you take these factors into account, I believe the number is much higher than this 8.2%. Uh, let me define a couple things for you guys before I continue. So metabolic dysfunction, as I like to call the umbrella of diseases that affects glucose and energy metabolism, is pretty much the principal driver of heart disease and cancer, which are both the leading cause of death in the U.S., as this podcast goes on, we're going to dive deep into what metabolic dysfunction is and how we can treat it. Okay, so definitely uh, it's clearly an epidemic in, uh, in this country. A lot of people are suffering from it, and it's, um, it's something that needs, uh, needs to be talked about. So can you explain a little bit about what type 2 diabetes is, maybe the differences between type 2 diabetes and type 1 diabetes that the viewer may not know? and uh, how it develops, and maybe you know who's more at risk of developing it. Yeah, so as a primary care physician, uh, I see a lot of type 2 diabetes. And um, in my practice, I would say maybe 25 to 50% of my patients have diagnosed type 2 diabetes, either diagnosed by me or by another physician. So for, for the purposes of this talk, we're, we're really only going to be talking about type 2 diabetes. Um, as you mentioned, there are different types of diabetes. Uh, the proper term is diabetes mellitus, and there's different types of diabetes. There's type 1, there's type 2, there's even type 1.5, there's MODY, and there's LADA. What that means uh, is they're basically autoimmune causes of diabetes. So I think the most common type of, type of diabetes that's autoimmune that we know of is type 1. That typically affects children and young adults. It's primarily autoimmune in nature. Um, you know, we won't be talking too much about that one today. We're really going to be focusing on type 2 diabetes. So what is, what is type 2 diabetes? 
Basically, type 2 diabetes is a disorder of glucose metabolism, plain and simple. So there's different ways people can develop this condition, uh, but they all end up manifesting the same way. Uh, the pathophysiology of diabetes is mainly driven by an incongruence between the hormone called insulin and the cells throughout the body. So what do I mean by this? So let me first explain what normal human physiology does. So under normal circumstances, insulin is released from the pancreas anytime we eat food or drink things such as, besides water. So if you have coffee with sugar, soda, tea, you know, your body is, your insulin is going to be responding to that. The main function of insulin is to allow glucose to enter cells so that energy can be created in the form of ATP. I know a lot of you don't know what ATP is. For the purposes of this talk, ATP means energy. So that's the way that cells create energy. Basically, without insulin, we would be dead in a, in a matter of minutes. However, when insulin is constantly in excess amounts in the blood, this stimulates a constant release of insulin, which if it's stimulated too often can lead to what is called insulin resistance. And I know this is a term that's been thrown everywhere recently, especially in news outlets and social media. We'll talk more about what insulin resistance is in a little bit. Uh, but basically, the body becomes resistant to insulin because the receptors on the cell surface become saturated. What does that mean? So our cells, they all have these things called receptors. These are little proteins that basically detect um, insulin. So when there's, when there's too much insulin in the bloodstream for whatever reason, uh, those receptors, they, they can no longer bind insulin. And what that means is that they can't do what they usually do and they can't do it as efficiently. Um, you know, most of the time, some patients, the reason why they develop diabetes is because either A, they have way too much insulin, which we'll get into why, or B, they're, they're constantly being stimulated, which means that the, the receptor, which I just spoke about, is no longer working. So it's either one of those two that usually happens. Um, you know, the other causes, those are more autoimmune. We won't be talking about that perhaps in a separate episode. Uh, but for today, we're really going to be focusing on the insulin side of it and then the cell receptor side of it. Uh, this is a very simplified overview, but I think for the, for our listeners, this is some, an easy way for them to understand. And there are several risk factors for developing diabetes. Um, you know, some of them include family history, uh, obesity is a big one, a poor diet, lack of sleep and lack of physical activity. So those are, that's a overview of, of what causes diabetes and what are the, some of the risk factors are. So basically in summary, what you're saying is after we eat a meal that has sugar or drink something with sugar, um, or glucose, right? Our body, our pancreas, which is an organ near the stomach, correct? Yeah. It's a pan the pancreas is a little organ that's super important that sits in the middle of your abdomen. It's towards the back. So your stomach is, is almost in the center. Your pancreas is all the way in the back. It's, a retro, it's called a retroperitoneal organ, and it, it, it produces insulin. Right. And it also produces uh, glucagon, or is that correct? Glucagon? Yeah, glucagon, that's a, that's a separate hormone. Pancreas does a lot of things, but insulin is one of the most important ones. So basically, after we eat or consume glucose, our pancreas has to produce insulin, which allows the sugar or glucose to uh, enter our cells and not yeah. stay in our bloodstream. And mm -hmm. if it does stay in our bloodstream, that's what happens with uh, hyperglycemia. We have an increase in blood sugar content, and that's essentially bad for our body, correct? Exactly. But let me say something before you continue. It's not just glucose. 
Insulin is stimulated by all the macronutrients. So protein, if you eat protein, insulin is secreted. If you eat fat, that's insulin secreted. If you eat carbs, insulin is secreted. The difference is that insulin is most stimulated by carbohydrates. So it had, when you, if you were to compare carbohydrates, fats, and, and protein, the carbohydrates are the ones that stimulate insulin the most. So you're going to see the biggest spike after you eat carbohydrates. And we'll get into the different types of carbohydrates because they're not all the same. But it's not just carbohydrates, it's proteins and fat. So they're all stimulated. So how, how does uh, type 2 diabetes uh, manifest? Yeah, great question. So most of the time, it's actually asymptomatic, meaning no symptoms whatsoever. So a lot of my patients, they come to me and they're either there for a physical exam or annual physical or some sort of follow-up. And I happen to check their their blood work and they end up being di diagnosed with diabetes, even though they're completely asymptomatic. That's actually most most cases. Some patients do present with symptoms. The most common include fatigue. They feel tired. Uh, they're very thirsty. Um, they have they're urinating a lot more than usual. And some in rare cases, uh, they present with weight loss, which uh, I can explain a little bit. But weight loss is actually always a very concerning symptom in medicine. It's never a good thing. Um, so that's typically how it manifests. Um, we'll talk more about this, but diabetes affects every organ system in the body. So every single organ system is affected. And as the disease progresses, it damages nerves, which you, you, which you mentioned, uh, which can manifest as a classical pins and needles sensation, typically in the hands and feet, uh, balance issues, which I know you'll be talking about, vision problems, in some cases, complete blindness. Uh, it can cause uh, heart attacks, strokes, uh, and in se severe cases, death because of the extremely elevated levels of glucose. Um, in terms of uh, manifesting in blood work, we'll get more into this, but there are some blood tests that we check to diagnose diabetes, um, and but we'll talk more about that later on. Okay, so uh, how, how do you actually diagnose type 2 diabetes, and uh, how is insulin resistance diagnosed? Yeah, great question. So there, there are basically three ways to diagnose diabetes, and they all involve blood work. So the three classical ways are you're going to have an A1C greater than 6.4%. So what is an A1C? Hemoglobin A1C is a blood test that measures the average three-month sugar uh, of the past three months. Um, so someone that's very smart figured out that our red blood cells, which are the cells that carry oxygen throughout the body, they can actually attach, glucose can attach to those red blood cells. And uh, those are called glycated end products. And if your diet consists way too much of carbohydrates, those red blood cells, they start attaching a lot of glucose. And when we check the A1C, what we're, what we're checking is your average three months sugar in the past three months. So if that number is greater than 6.4%, then you're, you're considered diabetic. That's the most common way. That's how I frequently diagnose diabetes in my patients. But there are two other ways. One is a fasting glucose greater than 126 milligrams per deciliter. So you would have a patient come in in the morning, they fast overnight, and then you check their fasting glucose. And if it's greater than 126, they're considered diabetic. This last test is not really done anymore. It used to be standard, but it's called an oral glucose tolerance test. Uh, essentially, you would have a patient drink glucose and then you would measure their glucose at one hour two hours and it basically tells you how well their insulin is working 
So that's basically how you would diagnose it. Now, this is this is where I think most of this conversation is going to go today. Uh, it's not enough just to diagnose diabetes. You you really have to be thinking, you know, ahead of that. And uh, I believe every patient who goes to the doctor should be checked for insulin resistance because this is the most effective way of preventing full-blown diabetes. So there are several things that I look for, including uh, physical exam findings and blood test results. Uh, for example, if the blood pressure is above 130 systolic or over 80 diastolic, I'm already suspecting, suspecting insulin resistance because high insulin levels will raise the blood pressure. And you know we'll, we'll talk more about that later. If the BMI is above 27, body mass index, that's, that's a clue for me. Uh, waistline greater than 40 inches in men, 35 inches in women, it's another risk factor. There's a physical exam finding called acanthosis nicocans, which I don't know if you've seen, Sam, in your, in your clinic, yeah. but it's when patients, they have these black patches in their neck, typically under their arms. It's, a, it's actually a marker of uh, insulin resistance. And then I actually the other have one, seen uh -huh. that. Yeah, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen that. I've seen some skin lesions. I've seen some skin tags. Skin and tags. I always wonder what, the, what, that, what that was caused by. Yep. And skin tag is actually the other, other common one, skin manifestation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, those are some of the physical exam findings that, that alarm me to a possible diagnosis of diabetes. Then we also have blood work. Uh, in the blood work, typically you're going to have a low HDL, a high triglyceride, a C-peptide and a fasting insulin level, which will be on the higher end of normal. And you also may see elevated liver enzymes. So all these things, I'm keeping all these things in mind when I see a patient for the first time or in follow-up. Uh, that's typically, those are the things that I'm looking for. Uh, other things would be protein in the urine because uh, diabetes actually causes kidney damage. And whenever there's kidney damage, that presents as your protein in the urine. So notice how I haven't mentioned glucose once, guys. <laughs> this is because you can have a perfectly normal glucose level and a perfect A1C and still be insulin resistant. Okay? Mm. And let me explain why. Basically, the pancreas, which is the organ that creates insulin, uh, has a very, very large reserve. What that means is that insulin can pump out a lot of insulin. Sorry, pan the pancreas can pump out a lot of insulin for many, 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 many years without any changes in the glucose. So you can literally be seeing a patient for 10 years, their glucose will be pristine, their A1C pristine, yet they're pumping out insulin like crazy because of a terrible diet, because of a terrible lifestyle, which we'll get into. And you would never know that they're insulin resistant because you never check the labs that, that I just mentioned. It's not enough just to check the A1C and the glucose. You have to dig deeper. So I, what I do for all my patients, and all their physicals and, and also follow-ups is you have to check a fasting insulin level. So a fasting insulin level of less than two is what we're looking for. If someone has a fasting insulin level less than two, that's considered very, very healthy. Basically, I tell the patient not to eat the night before, come in on an empty stomach, and we measure their insulin, which is going to be fasting, and then their C-peptide. What is C-peptide? C-peptide is, uh, is basically a proxy for insulin. So when, you're, when your C-peptide is high, your insulin is going to be high. So it, it's just a marker of insulin. And you, I can't tell you how many times I've seen patients come in with perfect glucose, perfect A1C. I checked their fasting insulin, their C-peptide through the roof. And this would never be picked up unless you check it. And, it's, it's, and, and I believe, um, I, I, as you guys remember in the beginning, I was mentioning statistics. 
I believe that in the U.S. and, and around the world, the actual percentage of patients who are insulin resistant, it has to be above 50%. Because if we're already diagnosing almost 10% with full-blown, I mean, you got to maybe add 20% for pre-diabetes. We're already at 30%. And then what, what, if, what percentage of those are insulin resistant? The number must be above 30, if I were to guess. I don't have the exact number, but it's somewhere in that ballpark. So, you know, these are some of the labs that must be checked and um, when you go see a physician. Because if you don't have these labs, you're not going to have the full picture of uh, your real risk for diabetes. So, super important. Yeah, that's interesting how you, you know, throughout that entire part, you, you didn't mention glucose once in terms of uh, diabetes and how that's, uh, you know, an important marker there. A lot of people, when they think of diabetes, they just think of sugar. They just think of glucose, you know, in the blood. Is it high? Is it low? But, you know, our glucose is supposed to fluctuate after we eat a meal. Is that right? Yeah. It's so normal. I, let me, yeah, let me talk a little bit more about that. So let's go back to the normal human physiology of what's supposed to happen. So insulin is actually a good thing. You need, like I said, you need insulin. If you don't have insulin, you'll be dead in five minutes. And we see this with in type one diabetics who actually don't make any insulin. Um, if you don't, if they don't have insulin, they're, they're, they're going to die uh, within 10 minutes. Because insulin is not only needed for glucose metabolism, but you also need it for maintaining your blood pressure and various other um, processes. But basically, anytime you eat, uh, insulin goes up. It's normal, normal human physiology. And what's supposed to happen is every time you eat, it's supposed to go up fast and it's supposed to come down fast. That's a very important key point here. Mm. So you want up fast and, and down fast. What happens with the standard American diet, right? And the way we're eating, we'll get more into this, is that people are eating constantly throughout the day and they're eating processed carbohydrates, sugars, things they're not supposed to be eating. And so the whole day, insulin is high, 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 high. And we have all these spikes randomly throughout the day because people are eating so often. So, you know, just to summarize, we always want the insulin to go up fast and down fast. We don't want it to be staying in the bloodstream and we don't want it to be lingering and being stimulated all the time because that's what causes problems uh, in the human body. Is that kind of similar to heart rate? Um, like when we exercise, we want our, our cardiac response to, to be pretty quick. Like we want our heart rate to go up. Like if we're running up a hill, we want it to go up and then we want it to kind of go down pretty quick. Is that like a like similar like uh, comparison? It's similar. You have to understand that the human body is all about clocks. And it's all about uh, timing and rhythm. So everything in the human body, even when it comes to sleep, there's a circadian rhythm. And when it comes to digestion, when it comes to breathing, when it comes to heart rate, the same thing with insulin. Um, the human body does not want to be in a state of high glucose. So that's also called hyperglycemia. It's one of the worst things that the body can, can be in is, is a state of high glucose. Uh, because when the glucose is high, that causes a lot of problems. Uh, it causes vascular or artery damage, nerve damage everywhere. So it is similar to heart rate. It, it's, it goes up and it goes down in response. Um, but that's the key. It, has, it, it should be very fast and pulsatile. Mm. So up fast, slow fast and down fast. Got it. So, you know, there, there are a lot of different treatments and medications that I see as a physical therapist for diabetes, depending on the uh, severity of it. Um, one of the treatments, obviously, is medications. 
such as metformin, insulin, various other medications. Um, but I, I rarely see a specific diet being prescribed for patients besides just, you know, a patient going to a medical provider be, and, and, and them finding out, hey, I have diabetes now, and then leaving the office, you know, the medical the, the medical office. And the only thing that doctor told them was just, you know, watch your sugar, you know, eat low, low sugar, you know, and that's pretty much all the patient education that a lot of people are getting. And as a physical therapist, when I'm having these conversations with my patients, there's a lot of lack of knowledge on their condition, what they can eat, what they can't eat, what are healthy foods. So you as an internal medicine physician, how do you treat type 2 diabetes? And what separates your approach from the traditional way that a lot of medical providers are treating type 2 diabetes? Yeah, that's a great question. And we're really going to delve deep into this now. Um, so let me, before I continue, let me make something very clear. So diabetes is not permanent. Okay. It's reversible in most cases. So that, that's something that's thrown out in the medical community. That diabetes is a chronic condition. Not the case. Diabetes is not chronic. It's reversible. 100% reversible. I've seen it in my patients and I've seen it throughout my training. It's, uh, it's not something that's chronic. It's chronic if you want it to be chronic. If you're not treating it correctly, you're not eating the right foods, it becomes chronic. But that's the first thing that you have to understand. Now, once the diagnosis of type 2 diabetes has been established, there are several things that I usually recommend for the patient. The first thing I like getting is called a cardiac calcium scan and a liver ultrasound. I get them with all my patients who I just diagnosed with diabetes. Why do I get a cardiac calcium scan? Basically, it's a scan that looks at the calcium score of your heart. Uh, we know that diabetics are at much increased risk for developing heart disease. Because uh, when you're diabetic, uh, the high insulin levels and the high glucose levels, they damage the arterial wall. So it's well established that er diabetics, there are increased risks for, for heart disease and, and heart attacks and strokes. So I, I always want a baseline of all my patients to see where they're at with their cardiac calcium scan. It's a simple scan. It's about $100. It's not covered by insurance. And it gives us a lot of information about your risk for heart disease. And it gives you a, a score based on your age. And it basically compares you with other people your age and gives you a percentile. Um, you know, there's a lot of factors that go into this, your age, you know, how long you've been diabetic. But that's the first thing I usually get. The second thing I get is a liver ultrasound. Why, why a liver ultrasound? Well, I didn't talk about this yet, but the liver is actually one of the most important organs when it comes to diabetes. Now, when, I, when you think about insulin and glucose and all these things I just mentioned, there's actually two organs that are very, very, very sensitive to these things. One is the liver, one is the muscle. The liver is involved in, in um, creating what's called glycogen, which is, which is a stored, stored product of, of glucose. When you have too much insulin all the time, the liver is not able to do these things correctly. And it starts, it starts storing a lot of fat. So it starts converting a lot of carbohydrates into fat. And this presents as non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. And this, this is devastating. If, if, you, if you've been diagnosed with this condition, this is, this is alarming. And you, you have to make the changes that we'll talk about on this podcast. Uh, but essentially, I want, I want a baseline of their liver to see if they have fatty liver disease. And the ultrasound will be able to, to give us an, that information. Now, once I have that information, then I can proceed. And, you know, according, according to, the, to most guidelines and societies, including the USPSTF, uh, a newly diagnosed diabetic between the ages of 40 to 75, they should be started on statins, regardless of the risk of developing heart disease. 
So statins, what are statins? They're a class of medications that decrease your cholesterol. Uh, we'll have a future podcast on how statins actually work, but basically statins, they help reduce your risk of developing heart disease. So that's something that I discuss first with my patients, if they would be interested in starting that medication. Then the next step would usually be a conversation regarding medications. Uh, the go-to that I go with is called metformin, which is a very old medication. Uh, the way it works is that it increases your insulin sensitivity. So basically it makes your cells more sensitive to insulin. And also, this is important, at the level of the liver. It's very important to remember that. And then once I talk about that, then really the, the focus of my conversation is lifestyle. And, and then I'll check an A1C, I'll check the fasting insulin, glucose, every three months typically. But I actually want to pause here for a second because this is where I think our conversation is going to go two ways. Uh, what I just said is the treatment algorithm I propose to people who have full-blown diabetes. It's not the typical route I take with patients who are only insulin resistant. Now, remember what I, I, I told you guys about insulin resistance. You could have a perfectly normal glucose, normal A1C, and not be diabetic. Or the other way would be you're, a, you're diabetic by A1C standards and glucose. If, if you're the latter, then at that point, you know, unfortunately, we're going to focus more on metformin, medications, and also lifestyle. But, it, you know, unfortunately, it's a little too late. I think this is the important thing that most physicians should focus on picking up on this way ahead of time, years in advance. So let's say that, that you're insulin resistant only. The, the bulk of my conversation now at this point will be lifestyle changes. And I think the rest of this podcast is really going to be focusing on that. And when I say lifestyle, I'm referring to nutritional changes, exercise, and something called intermittent fasting, which we'll also sp speak about. And I think, honestly, this is the most effective way of truly preventing diabetes. Uh, I'm, I'm a firm believer in that. Uh, you know, I, th I think that medications, they do have a role in, in treatment. But when we look at clinical trials, and we actually look at the outcomes. Uh, we usually get numbers called risk reduction, relative risk reduction, and absolute risk reduction. We're getting maybe a 5% risk reduction when, when we use something, for example, as metformin. I'm not, don't call me in this, but it's something like 5%. When you talk about a lifestyle, I mean, it's like 80% reduction. So you guys want 80%? You guys want 5%. I want 80%. I don't know about you guys. I don't know about you, Sam. Do you want 80% or 5%? I think it's pretty obvious. It's obvious. Okay. I just want to make sure. So I guess now if you want, we can kind of talk about nutritional exercise. How do you want to go about this now at this point? Yeah. So I think uh, now's a good time to talk about intermittent fasting. I know Joe, you were, you were, um, you're a big believer in intermittent fasting. So am I. And it's something that we, we've been doing, I think on and off for probably last like 10 years, I would say. I remember we were both like working out, doing powerlifting, deadlifts, chest presses, um, bench presses, all that stuff. And, and we were doing intermittent fasting. We were doing great. We've done intermittent fasting on recently. We've done it, you know, different ways of doing it, different time frames, you know, kind of experimenting here and there. And I think uh, I think now's a good time to talk about the benefits of it and how you implement it in your clinical practice. And how it can be beneficial for patients with um, either prediabetes or diabetes, insulin resistance. Okay, so yeah, I, I've been fasting myself. I would say formally for about three years now. Uh, pretty much every single day, I incorporate some sort of fasting. But basically, let's define what is intermittent fasting. So, intermittent fasting, also known as time restricted eating, 
it's really been around for thousands of years. So this is not new. You know, humans throughout evolution, they've, they've been fasting. You know, ancient humans, they didn't, they didn't have access to food the way we do now. You know, they had to hunt, they had to get their food. And in that process, they were fasting, believe it or not. It, it was, they didn't know they were fasting, but they were fasting. So this is not a new concept. It's, it is not until recently, however, that we are really appreciating the positive impact this has on our health. So I think the easiest way to understand how fasting affects the body is, again, talking about our friend, insulin, once again. So every time we eat, insulin is released in response to protein, carbs, and fats. When we don't eat, insulin is not released. So based on this, it makes sense that if we're in a state of low insulin most of the time, um, you know, that, that's basically how fasting works. So whenever you're not eating, so fasting means you're not eating. It's, it's, it's a fancy term for not eating. And so if you don't eat, insulin is not, it's not released. It's as simple as that. And, you know, I know a lot of people, they try to confuse, you know, it's very confusing, but it's basically not, not eating equals no insulin being secreted. And it turns out that insulin is, is basically the, the culprit of diabetes. Like if you have too much insulin, unfortunately, you're going to develop diabetes. That's just the way it works. And so I personally, when I tell my patients is try not to eat too often, aim to eat maybe once or twice a, a day and avoid snacking. You know, you want to make sure that you're eating one or two meals that, that's going to make you full so that you avoid the snacking. You basically don't want to be any, anytime you eat, you're stimulating insulin. That's the thing that's going to be the, the most important point of this talk today is if you eat, you're going to release insulin, which is not a good thing. It's a good thing if it's once or twice a day, but if you're frequently just snacking and eating in front of a TV, you're going to keep releasing insulin and you're increasing your risk for de developing diabetes. So number one, don't eat frequently. Eat maybe once or twice a day max. And I recommend, I, I term things as eating windows and fasting windows. So what's an eating window? Eating window is the time where you're eating. So you want to be eating less than eight hours every day. And you want to be fasting at least 12 hours. I tell most of my patients, you know, work up to it. You don't want to be starting fasting, you know, for 24 hours in a row. I say maybe start with 12 and then work up to maybe 16 to 18 hours per day. And ideally, you want to be doing this two to three times a week at first. And then once you get more used to it, then you can do it every, every day. So that, that's basically how I explain to my patients uh, intermittent fasting. Yeah, I think um, for me, I've been doing it for a long time on and off. Um, recently, I, I haven't been doing it because I'm trying a new diet. But when I was doing it, I really felt the effects of it. One of the effects I felt was um, mental clarity and focus. And I think, I think intermittent fasting, in my opinion, just it allows your organs to just rest. You know, there's, there's a common, you know, you hear it a lot like, oh, you should be eating five meals a day, five small meals a day, you know, snack here and there, get some peanuts, get some, you know, I, I don't think that's the right way to go about it. Because like you said, you're constantly producing insulin all day. You don't you don't give your your organs a chance to rest, and and you know when you think of fasting, right? We all fast actually when we sleep at night. We're actually fasting, so I think a lot of people are afraid of it because it's like, whoa, you know, that's I can't go, you know, three even more than three hours without eating, or even a few hours without eating because I get hungry. But it's like your body is trained to be hungry because of the, the, the habitual patterns from your brain to your gut, the connection between 
the psychology and, 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 and your physiology. So what I like to describe is if you wake up at 7 a.m. and you eat breakfast at 8 a.m., like I say, like a bowl of cereal, maybe some orange juice or cereal and a muffin or a Dunkin' Donuts sandwich and a iced coffee. What the traditional? Nah, it doesn't sound healthy, Sam, to me. It doesn't. And we'll get to that. Don't worry. <laughs> you know, the traditional like American breakfast, you know, cereal, frosted flakes, you know, Wheaties, whatever it is, orange juice, coffee. Um, if you if you have breakfast at 8 a.m. and you wake up at 7 a.m., your brain, and you do that for a very long time, your brain will start to, you know, produce, you know, stimulate your organs to start to produce those digestive hormones at a certain time. So you'll start to get those little gurgles in your in your gut that tell you you're hungry at maybe like 7.30. So you've kind of, you've created this pattern in your body to release those digestive hormones. So you feel hungry at that time. But you can actually retrain your body to not produce those hormones at that time by slowly starting to not eat at that time. And by doing intermittent fasting, you actually won't be hungry. You won't be like starving if you if you practice it and you stick with it. That's something that I had to do for a while. It was very hard in the beginning because I would literally be starving. But after, you know, after a few days, maybe a week or so, my body stopped producing those hormones at that time. And that made me less hungry. So I think I think a lot of people are afraid of it because they just they can't go a certain amount of time without eating. But there's so many health benefits to fasting, intermittent fasting. And I think uh, I think, you know, people should try it out. Yeah. And we're going to have a separate, completely separate talk on just intermittent fasting, and the benefits. You know, I just mentioned one benefit, which was in terms of diabetes that, you know, but like you said, there's multiple, multiple benefits. It improves your cognition, your energy levels, your strength. You know, there's more and more evidence coming out daily on the on the effects of, of fasting uh, and also on longevity. That's the mm. that's a, maybe actually the biggest yeah. one because it, it creates that process mm-hmm. called autophagy, right? Autophagy, yep. yeah. So, autophagy what, what, is basically it's a recycling system where the the body gets rid of old cells through and when when you fast, this happens, mm-hmm. and it repairs mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cell, will create energy. So right. actually fasting, the the real reason it works, it may be actually because of promoting longevity. Well, and there's studies okay, that so show that it's good for your microbiome as well, which is, you know, right. the, the bacteria in your, in your intestines, in your gut. For sure. Yeah. yeah fasting yeah. is, it's, so fasting, there's no, there's really no reason to, to fear fasting because again, we're built, we're not made to be eating every single hour. All right. We're just not. If you actually study human physiology and you study insulin and you study the satiety hormones such as leptin and ghrelin, you understand that the way that the gut and the mind work is that it's all controlled by hormones. So our appetite, why why are we hungry? Has anyone ever thought about that? It's it's just different. There's actually different reasons. One is environmental cues, which as mm-hmm. you as right now, like the society that we live in, there's cues everywhere. TV. If you walk down the street, there's McDonald's. You're watching TV, the Super Bowl, and what do you see? McDonald's commercial. So there's cues everywhere. You know what's funny? I was actually uh, watching a, a comedy special the other day with a friend of mine. Um, and I, I rarely watch TV nowadays. And we sat down on the couch to watch this comedy special. And after five minutes, my stomach started gurgling. And I was craving chips. 
Yep. And then, guys, that is my weakness. You know, we're not all perfect here. Let's be honest. We all have weaknesses. I don't eat them anymore, but you know, I could eat a, I could eat a whole bag of chips. You know, back in the day. And uh, one thing that I associated with eating chips was watching TV. And I found that I have this connection, the psychological connection with when I sit down and watch TV, my my body starts to crave a certain food because of the associations that I've made. You know, it's all like classical conditioning, right? Yeah. The Pavlov experiments. Once I see the, the, the TV or the couch, I start craving these foods. But, you know, it's something yep. that I've eliminated. But, you know, it was an interesting reminder of doing that. So, there's that, like you said, there's definitely a connection in, in this, and there's a lot of temptation out there. But, you know, it's definitely something to be aware of, I think, and something that so, you can fix. Yeah. So something to keep in mind is that, you know, hunger and eating, it, it, it's, it's like any other human process, okay? Like sleep. When you sleep, you sleep, you wake, usually wake up at the same time, you go to bed at the same time. You know, even having a bowel movement, believe it or not, there's actually little cells in your gut that they actually control when you go to the bathroom. So the same thing is with, with, with eating. Like we're, you, we're just used to eating at certain times. It's not necessarily the way it's supposed to be. And we'll we'll talk more about this later on, but um, really, there's there's nothing to fear about fasting. We're meant to fast as human beings. We're designed to not eat all the time. And when we were hunter gatherers, we weren't eating all the time. So this five day a meal thing is it's just not it's not it's just not true. It's not accurate. And those studies are all wrong. They they're they've all none of them have been shown to cause long term weight loss. And it, all it does is it stimulates your appetite and it just keeps you hungrier and hungrier. Another thing that fasting does is that you would think that when you do eat, you're going to eat like crazy. You actually don't. And why is this? It's because when you're fasting, you're basically resetting all your satiety hormones. So insulin resets, leptin, which is the, the hormone that causes you to be full, resets, ghrelin, which is a hormone that causes to be hungry, resets. You get all these hormones reset. Mm-hmm. And and you also realize that you're in control. It's you. Your mind is in control. Now you're not because you see a bagel and it's eight in the morning in the office. You don't have to eat that bagel, right? Right. You don't. You eat. You eat when you're ready to eat. When you and you, when you have the food that you're gonna eat, not just some random thing that you see in the in yeah. the office office table. Yeah, and I think we, that's we all know thing. that, right, guys? The donut that they put, don't eat it. Yep, yep. And that's that's one thing that uh, that I was talking about earlier. It's it's the willpower, like being you know being on the intermittent fasting protocol. I I had more mental clarity and more willpower, and I'm able to control what what I eat when I eat. You know, so I think uh, that's that's really interesting there. So let's let's move on here um, from intermittent fasting, guys. Yeah, we'll definitely do a podcast like specifically on that. But I want to talk a little bit about, um, I have a question for you, Joe. Okay. Um, actually, yeah, one question on the intermittent fasting before we move on. Because we talked about medications a little bit, right? Metformin, things like Just that. Just metformin. That's right. We didn't speak too much about it. Right. So let's, let's say you, you have a patient who is on these medications and maybe more medications, most likely, right? Blood pressure medications, statins, metformin. And they wake up in the morning and their doctor told them, you know, you have to take these medications with food. What would you say to a patient who's inquiring about intermittent fasting, who maybe be, who's maybe fearful of um, not eating in the morning with their medications and who's also diabetic? Yeah. So that's basically all the patients I see. So, you know, it's very rare that I see a patient who exercises and sleeps eight hours and fasts, 
that's very rare. The patients that I'm seeing are usually, unfortunately, unhealthy. They're on multiple medication, multiple comorbidities. So what I usually say is, okay, the first goal is we got to get you out of these medications. All right. That's the first thing. It's, it's, it's actually very rare for someone to have to be in all those medications. So let's say as an example, let's say someone's on six medications. I'm pretty sure I can take them off of three. All right. Just through lifestyle changes and, and just changing some things. But if they have to take them, what I recommend is, you know, either you want to adjust your eating window or you just you just take them a little bit later. There's no reason why you have to take them in the morning. You could take medications in the morning or at night. It doesn't matter. All those studies, none of those studies standardize for any of that. So you can take your metformin in the morning. You can take it at night. You can take it in the afternoon. doesn't matter. You really want to take it with food because it increases the absorption. So as an example, let's say you're going to start eating your first meal at 10 in the morning. Well, take your medications at 10. Take it, take, take when you're eating at that time, take your metformin with food or your aspirin or your statin, blood pressure medication. And, and then you're going to stop eating maybe at six and you'll be fine. But there's no reason that you have to take it at eight in the morning. I mean, that's silly. None of those studies show that. So that, that's, that's just wrong. Okay, so is it safe to say that if your doctor is not trying to take you off your diabetes medications, maybe you find a new doctor? Well, I'll say this. Um, I think it's tricky. You know, I, I think most doctors uh, mean well. But I, I do think that, you know, most of the patients that come to me, you know, they've been, they've been on med several medications for many years. And I find that they've never even had the conversation with the provider of, discontinuing those medications. Mm. I think that's an important thing. You know, you know, medications, they have a role, obviously, and they do have benefits. But I, I think that as a provider, you always want to have that conversation with patients is, oh, when can we expect to discontinue this medication? Is this something that we have to be on this forever? You know, what, is the, what does the data show? Like, do we have to be on this for long term? Let me give you an example before we continue. So I know you guys have heard of aspirin. Very, very common medication. It's been around for a while. Aspirin is a blood thinner and, you know, you can obtain it over the counter for fairly easy to get very cheap. So back in the day, and I'm saying eighties and nineties, most physicians, they, they, they would say, take aspirin. They, they, everybody was, was told to take aspirin because, you know, it was shown to have benefits with preventing heart disease and stroke. Well, we recently just found out that there's actually more harm than benefit with aspirin. And it depends on your age and depends on many factors. But basically, if you're over the age of 65, you really don't want to be on aspirin because it increases your bleeding risk much more than what it does. So why am I saying this? Because I'm giving the example of these medications. We don't, we don't exactly know how long you have to take them for. Like, we, there's no studies that show that. So why, why would I put a patient on a medication for 10 years without any evidence? Like, why would I do that? Mm-hmm. Right, because we're all evidence based here. We want to we want to yeah. go with the evidence. So, I feel like and as a, it's my duty as a physician to always have that conversation with patients. Are, are do you want to continue this or do you not want to continue this? And this is what I think you should do. And this is the real problem with medications. It's not just that you know should they be taking it or not. Some patients they they just don't take it. So compliance is a huge issue in in medicine. Some patients they just flat out don't take it for many reasons because of either busy or it's expensive or they can't afford it or they read something online to say, oh, that medication causes this. So it's very important that the, the providers speak with their patients about medications and, you know, specifically 
when can we discontinue this medication? So I think that's very important. And diabetes is, uh, you know, obviously a serious disease, um, but it is one of the non-communicable diseases in the in the United States. And guys, yeah. what that means is that it's not like you can't get it from somebody else. You know, it's not infectious. It's not. It's something that m is mostly modifiable. Yeah. And there are there are a ton of modifiable risk factors um, for diabetes. Some of them, like Joe mentioned, lifestyle changes, exercise, body mass index waist circumference, mm -hmm. blood pressure, smoking, you know, the, even even psychosocial, like depression, increased stress. Uh, you know, these are things that we can fix. And, you know, obviously there are non-modifiable risk factors like uh, your age and um, socioeconomic status, uh, which I guess some people can argue you can modify, uh, low birth mm -hmm. weight, family, you know, history, genetic predisposition. But at the end of the day, guys, you know, this is a very modifiable um, disease. And like Joe said, you know, it's reversible in most cases. Yeah. So actually, let me let me add something here. So let's talk about family history for a second. So I get this very, very commonly with my patients. And when I ask them, hey, do you have any family history? They say diabetes. It turns it turns out that family history really has almost nothing to do with developing type 2 diabetes. All right. You guys heard me. It's it's actually not inherited. It's all lifestyle. So do you do you, do you want to know why it runs in the family? It's because most families eat the same way. Most families eat the same way, and that's poorly. And most families don't exercise. And most families are eating processed food. And most families have all these issues like smoking and socioeconomic. So, you know, is diabetes genetic? I, I don't think, I haven't seen any evidence for that. I, I'm a firm believer that diabetes, specifically type 2 here, I'm not talking about type 1 or the others, type 2 is almost almost 100% preventable. I don't want to say 100%, but I, if I were to give it a number, I would say 90 plus percent preventable. It's all lifestyle, all of it. It's your exercise, it's your sleep pattern, it's your stress levels, and it's your diet. So this whole notion of family history it's just silly. It's just, it doesn't exist. There, there, there's no, I haven't seen one study that, that showed that family history contributes to, to development of type 2 diabetes. I would like to see it. I haven't seen it. Right. So yeah, moving forward here, we're going to talk a little bit about um, physical therapy and, and its implications for diabetes. So Joe, uh, what, what is something that you want to know about how a physical therapist um, I guess, views diabetes, how, what, how they treat it, do they treat it? Um, you know, what, what is, a, as, a, as a physician's, you know, from a physician's point of view? I mean, I would say first, how do you approach someone who, with diabetes in your practice? Yeah, so, you know, there's a, the research articles show that, you know, up to 80% of patients referred for outpatient physical therapy, which is the setting that I work in, outpatient. Uh, they have diabetes or are at risk for diabetes, you know, so this gives us a huge, huge opportunity as physical therapists to intervene and help you guys fight this epidemic. So we can have an impact in multiple ways. Some ways are by providing guidance on physical activity participation in patients who have or are at risk for diabetes. We can also regularly screen our patients for risk factors like the ones we mentioned earlier for diabetes and diabetes related complications. 
And the related complications are, are some of the things that we see in, in our practice, such as musculoskeletal. You know, there are conditions um, that are more prone, prone to be exacerbated or there are, you know, diabetes does lead to other complications like vascular issues, intermittent claudication, like pain in the legs due to, you know, poor blood flow to the legs. It can cause diabetic neuropathy, which like you said, is burning pins and needles, pain to the feet, um, even to the hands. Um, and, you know, it can even cause, uh, you know, issues like, um, uh, like just, you know, poor balance and fall risk because you're not, you know, you, have, you lose some sensation in your feet. And that can make you more at risk for falls and then, you know, more issues down the line, like bone fractures. But the other way that we can uh, impact uh, patients with diabetes is by advocating, like I said, for regular physical activity as a key component. So I'm going to speak a a little bit about some of the complications that that can lead to uh, to some more issues down the line, if you know, untreated. One of them is musculoskeletal. So remember, guys, our nerves run side by side to our blood vessels and our nerves, you know, our nerves need blood. They need oxygen. So it, it, with diabetes, if it goes untreated or poorly treated, what happens is that our myelin sheath, which is the covering the outer coat of our nerves becomes damaged. And, uh, that can be very painful. And we start to get those sensations of pins and needles, burning, numbness, and what that's going to do is it's going to it's going to cause less innervation to our muscles and less innervation to our muscles can cause atrophy or wastening of our muscles so there's been studies that show a correlation between um, diabetes and intrinsic foot muscle deterioration which is the muscles on the on the sole of our feet and it also causes collapse of our our midfoot when we're walking and this is going to, like I said, it's going to cause problems with walking. It's going to cause problems with balance, which can lead to further issues like falls. Also, frozen shoulder or adhesive capsulitis. There's been a huge link between diabetes and frozen shoulder or shoulder pain. And this is because uh, something called AGEs, which Joe talked a little bit about earlier. Those are advanced glycogen end products. Uh, which basically make our collagen thicker and more stiff. So having that increased sugar in our bodies can actually cause our collagen to thicken. In our shoulder, we have a huge capsule. We have a lot of connective tissue. And if we have an increase in AGEs, we can develop frozen shoulder, which is something that I address with my patients with frozen shoulder. I ask them, you know, what are you eating? Are you consuming a lot of sugar? You know, I'm following up with them and make sure that we're treating, like I said in the last episode, the patient as a whole and not a whole. Moving on from that, I mentioned earlier vascular um, peripheral artery disease uh, is another health complication. And, uh, you know, there are walking programs that we use with those patients to help improve quality of life. But the, the biggest thing here I want to talk about is peripheral neuropathy. You know, we, we do, I've been seeing a lot of this in, in our practice. And uh, it can affect up to 75% of people with diabetes. So again, it's it's that burning numbness feeling in the feet. And uh, there was a study here done in, in India, which is actually considered the world's capital of diabetes, which a projected diabetic population approaching an alarming mark of 70 million individuals by 2025. And what the study did was it took two different groups of people. And one, one group got 
low got the um, light force laser, which is a class four laser, also known as deep tissue laser therapy. Um, and the other group got a sham treatment, so no laser, but they thought they were getting laser. And they looked at the management of pain, function, systemic inflammation through systemic inflammatory markers, and overall quality of quality of life in older adults with painful diabetic peripheral neuropathy. And again, guys, this was a randomized, double-masked, sham-controlled interventional trial. And that's something I want to state because when we look at research studies, there's a pyramid, right? There's a top and there's a bottom. And when we see things on the news or we see things on online on Google or social media, we only see the headlights, right? We only see some random fact like, oh, smoking helps with your cognitive effects. But like, what else, what else, you know, they don't explain anything else from the study. Maybe the study was done on like three people. Maybe the study was done on mice. Maybe the study was just poorly done and without a control group without, you know, so we got to analyze these things, right? We want to make sure our studies are randomized. So what they did was they randomized these two different groups. And, um, what they found was that using this laser therapy, which again, guys, it's a class four laser, uh, the most you'll feel is some soothing heat. Basically, it's a light that shines photons into the tissue, mostly the feet, because most most of the time the issue is on our, in our feet, you know, with diabetic foot neuropathy. The laser shines through, and the photons stimulate the mitochondria, which is the, the powerhouse of the cell, and it stimulates the mitochondria to produce more ATP, which is the energy that 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 is in our body, you know, the energy um, made by the uh, mitochondria. This is going to help with wound healing. It's going to help with inflammation. It's going to help speed up the healing process. So, again, this process is called photobiomodulation. So, after the study, there was a significant decrease in pain and functionality via the timed up and go test, which is basically a test to see how how fast you can get up from a chair, walk three meters, come on back, and sit down. So, um, there was also decreases in um, MCP1, which is uh, a systemic inflammatory marker in our serum. So it shows that this laser therapy can help improve symptoms in patients who have diabetic foot neuropathy. There's also studies on uh, the biodensity. The biodensity is a machine in which we have our patients do four movements, four isometric contractions uh, at 100% of the maximum strength for five seconds. So this study took 300 male and female patients with type 2 diabetes, randomized resistance training program, using the biodensity machine. The biodensity machine consists of four movements. The first is a chest press. The second is a core pull. The third is a leg press, like you see at your local gym. And the fourth is a vertical lift, like a deadlift motion. And uh, guys, literally 5 to 10 minutes per week. That's all it took for, an, for a six-month period. They analyzed baseline hemoglobin A1C levels, fasting plasma glucose levels, and they found that the group that performed the biodensity uh, actually had a reduction in hemoglobin A1C, improved scores, and improved scores on, on their fasting blood glucose at baseline levels. Interestingly, they also found improvements in the lipid profile. So there are significant improvements in their HDL which is, I guess, the quote-unquote good cholesterol. 
the LDL, quote-unquote, bad cholesterol, after just six months using this biodensity resistance training. So this is something that it's, uh, it's something kind of new that hasn't been out for a long time, but we use it at our clinic. And again, it's just five to 10 minutes per week. It's all it takes, guys, for a six-month period. And your hemoglobin will improve, your glucose will improve, and even your lipid profile will improve. So before I continue with the meat and potatoes of my presentation, which is exercise, aerobic activity, and what exercises can I prescribe as a physical therapist to patients with diabetes, I want to ask you something, Joe. Because last time we spoke about nutrition and how you got zero training on nutrition in medical school. So now I'm curious, how much training did you get on exercise in medical school? So the answer is also zero. Oh, Surprise. Surprise, surprise or alert, surprise, surprise. spoiler, spoiler alert. Uh. So basically we were, we were told that exercise helps with diabetes. That was the end of the story. They, they never, you know, we know we never got any training into what exercise, how much, what type of exercise. Yeah. That's pretty scary. You know, given the fact that we just spoke about how diabetes is a non-communicable disease, you know, you can change it via lifestyle through diet, but you know, I, I wish I wish more doctors knew about exercise, you know, but I guess that's why we're here as physical therapists. Yeah, that's, that's why, why I'm we're here in this podcast. And that's why I'm here. So I'm going to explain a little bit about physical activity and exercise prescription when it comes to type two diabetes. So in a meta analysis, again, top of the pyramid, top of the research that pyramid, top of the top, that's the best, best uh, uh, type of research. Right. It's not epidemiology. They're not case control studies. They're not case studies on one or two people. This is a meta-analysis, which is at the top of the pyramid of research. Hey Sam, why don't you go ahead and explain what is a meta-analysis for the for the listeners? Meta-analysis is like a, is a collection of a bunch of different randomized control trials that analyzes them and really looks at you know what is what are the the true results and from all these studies and what conclusion can we draw from all these collections of randomized control trials? Yeah. Okay. So in this meta-analysis on exercise type and exercise prescription for diabetes they looked at 32 randomized control trials Oof, okay that's 32. a lot and what they found was you know almost all the studies reported decreased glycated hemoglobin aka you know hemoglobin a1c fasting blood glucose bmi body mass index and waist circumference after the exercise intervention and the average exercise session was 45 Point fifteen minutes, so forty five minutes for one session. Guys, we have that right. We have forty five minutes. I mean, we have forty five minutes an hour to watch Netflix. You know, to watch episodes on Netflix or watch you know TV Re in the morning. Watch reruns. You know, we have time for that. We have time for everything else. Why don't why why aren't we giving ourselves time for our own health and wellness? Why can't we give ourselves forty five minutes three times a week? I'm not even asking you to do it every day. These studies showed. That the mean exercise frequency, according to these findings, was 3.25 days a week. Guys, there's no pill that does this. There is no pill that is going to give you these effects without side effects. Okay? Okay? You may be a little sore, but that's not a big deal, right? 45 minutes, three times a week, you're going to have improvements in your blood glucose, hemoglobin, BMI, and waist circumference. And by the way, it's free. That's true. You don't need a gym. I actually don't even go to a gym right now. I work out at home. 
Yeah, it's right. free, so, so you don't you don't need to, it's nothing out of pocket. You know, you you don't need to beg your insurance company or anything. It's free. Where there's a will, there's a way. Okay, this is your this is your health. We got to take matters into our own hands, guys. You know, as a patient, you have to advocate for yourself. Forty five minutes, three times a week. But what are you actually gonna do? What are you gonna do for those forty five minutes? I'll explain. There's different types of exercise, guys. There's different um, you know pillars of exercise. One is aerobic, the other is resistance. Then you have things like balance, flexibility, high intensity interval training. I've heard of things like Tabata, obviously sports, you know, things like that. So I'll explain. Aerobic exercise consists of continuous rhythmic movement of large muscle groups, such as walking, jogging, and cycling. Okay, so the most recent ADA guidelines, which is the American Diabetic uh, Association, States that individual sessions of aerobic activity should ideally last around 30 minutes a day, performed three to seven days a week. And they recommend moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise training. So what does this mean, guys? Moderate to vigorous. It's basically 65% to 90% of your maximum heart rate. So it's, it's within that range. Um, and uh, what they found was that you know, moderate wait, to vigorous. Wait, Sam, before you continue, mm -hmm. how do you calculate your maximum heart rate? So I think it's important for the listeners. So whenever, whenever you hear something like this, the maximum heart rate is you want to take 220 and you want to subtract your age. Right. Okay? So let's say you're 40 years old. Your maximum heart rate is 180. Mm -hmm. So you would, you would calculate 180, multiply it by 65%, and that's the heart rate you want to get. But sorry to interrupt. Keep going. No, yeah. I mean, there's definitely different formulas, but that's the most simple one. It's definitely good to know how to do that. So thank you for that. Um, you know, and, and so moderate to vigorous, right? What is moderate intensity exercise or, you know, aerobic exercise? It could be something like a brisk walk at around four miles per hour. It could also be, you know, cleaning heavily, like you know, heavy cleaning around the house. That could be moderate intensity. It could also be bicycling at around 10 to 12 miles per hour. Or it could be something that Joe loves a lot, who he does on the weekends, called tennis. It could be tennis doubles. Right, Joe? Tennis, yep. Tennis and hiking. Yeah. Tennis. Tennis is fun. I beat him last time. Don't tell anybody, guys. <laughs> so that those are examples of moderate intensity exercise. What about vigorous? Oh, again, something that Joe did yesterday or today. Go on a hike. Where'd you hike yesterday, Joe? Bear Mountain. Bear Mountain. Beautiful. I went to school around there. It's a great area. Go out for a hike, guys. You know, yeah. Put on some hiking shoes. Go for a hike, 20, 30 minutes. Take breaks if you need to, but get, you know, get, get it fresh on. air, fresh get air, fresh and air. Again, it's free. Be in the sun, jogging six miles an hour is vigorous activity. Playing a basketball game, shoveling snow, bicycling fast, 14 to 60 miles per hour. These are examples of moderate to vigorous intensity aerobic activities. So, guys, just very keep it very simple. The next thing is resistance training. Like I said, the biodensity machine, which is a series of four movements, is a type of resistance training, okay? It's an isometric contraction, which is, you know, an isometric contraction, basically, if, if you guys want to, like, clench your fist, let's do it. Let's all do it right now. Just clench your fist. That's an isometric contraction. You're holding it. You're holding it for 5, 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds, however long you want to hold it. That's an isometric contraction. Now, guys, keep your wrist closed and now bring your, your wrist up and down, like the back of your palm up and down to the ceiling. That is a concentric contraction, like doing a bicep curl. That's going to strengthen your biceps. It's going to strengthen your wrist, right? Your legs, squats. These are forms of resistance training. 
So there's been improvements uh, that range from 10% to 15% in strength, bone mineral density, blood pressure, lipid profiles, insulin sensitivity, muscle mass. Resistance training is good for your entire body, especially in the older population. Um, you know, something called sarcopenia, which is a wastening of our muscle tissue as we age. And it's interesting that, you know, when you go to a gym, you mostly see young people at the gym. But actually, it should be the opposite. Older adults should be the ones lifting more weights than younger adults because of that sarcopenia. So, guys, don't be intimidated by gyms. Don't be intimidated by going to your local park and exercising because of your age. Do it. Do it for yourself. It's going to help you. Moving on. Um... You know, and, and they recommend it's best to combine both types of exercise. Don't just choose one. You know, three times a week, do your 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 cardio, your aerobic activity, and then pair it with some resistance training. Do some bicep curls, some squats, do some chest presses. You know, it doesn't have to be anything crazy heavy. As long as you're stimulating your muscles and, you know, you're building muscle mass. So it's good to combine both. Now, moving on to my favorite, HIIT. High intensity interval training, basically four to six repeated short bouts of maximal effort exercises interdispersed with brief periods of rest or recovery. High intensity interval training has been shown to increase skeletal muscle oxidative capacity, glycemic control, and insulin sensitivity in adults with type 2 diabetes. And again, guys, a recent meta-analysis, top of the top of the pyramid. Recent meta-analysis quantified the effects of, I'm going to call it HIIT, H-I-I-T. It quantified the effects of HIIT programs on glucose regulation and insulin resistance, which reported superior effects for HIIT compared with aerobic training or no exercise as a control group. So guys, it shows that HIIT programs is more effective than aerobic and resistance training. So... You know, uh, HIIT is something that I do myself. I know Joe does as well. You know, getting your heart rate up really, really fast and then taking a break. It's going to it's gonna help with that heart rate variability. You know, it's going to help with, you know, overall strength as well. And car- you're pretty much getting everything in one. You're getting a bang for your buck. So moving forward now, I want to talk a little bit about uh, the link between type 2 diabetes and dementia. So, Joe, can you tell us a little bit about something called type 3 diabetes? So, type 3 diabetes is actually a fairly recent uh, term that was coined by the medical society. And what that basically means is that, you know, type having two, type 2 diabetes increases your risk for developing dementia. And dementia is an umbrella term that encompasses many diseases, the most common being Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. So I'm going to talk a little bit about the study that I found. Uh, it's from the Social Psychiatry and Psychiatric Epidemiology Journal. It's a peer-reviewed medical journal from England. And it's a very, very good study. The title is Mild Cognitive Impairment and Progression to Dementia in People with Diabetes, Prediabetes, and Metabolic Syndrome. It's a systematic review and meta-analysis. So very similar to what Sam was talking about, his studies. So this is the best of the best studies that we have. And uh, essentially, I don't want to get into too many details with the study, but I'll give you some of the, the highlights. So they, what did, the aim was that they wanted to study the relative risk of progression from mild cognitive impairment to dementia in people with and without diabetes and with and without metabolic syndrome. 
before I continue, I have to define what metabolic syndrome is. I don't think we spoke about that. So there's actually a very strict criteria for what is metabolic syndrome. And you have to fulfill three out of five criteria. So one of those criteria is low triglycerides, sorry, low HDL, high triglycerides, high blood pressure, a waist greater than 40 inches in men and greater than 35 inches in women. And the other one is insulin resistance. So like hyperglycemia. So that's what we mean by metabolic syndrome. So that's basically what the study looked and they took a lot of, they took many, many, uh, patients, over 6,000 patients included in the study from all different parts of the world. And they really reported on 12 studies. The exact number of participants was actually 6,865. So that's the N. Okay. The N is the number of people in a study. And so that's a pretty big number. Yep. You always want a study that has a lot of N. Mm -hmm. All right. And they did a, a pooled odds ratio for the progression of mild cognitive impairment to dementia and people with diabetes and metabolic syndrome. So odds ratio, what's an odds ratio? Do you know, Sam? Uh, I forgot what it was. Can you explain? <laughs> yeah. So odds ratio is basically a statistical measure that basically compares two outcomes and it gives you like a, the strength of an association. So for example, the odds ratio of developing lung cancer is I don't know the exact number, but it's probably like a hundred if you smoke. So smoking causes lung cancer. That's that we use. It's called like odds ratio. And that's uh, the measure they use here primarily. They found any and anything above one means that there's a strong association, right? So they found that the overall pools pooled odds ratio for the progression of mild cognitive impairment to dementia in people with diabetes and metabolic syndrome was 1.65. So that's a strong association. All right. With a 95% confidence interval between 1.27 and 2.19. So that's pretty strong. And the odds ratio for progression in diabetes and mild cognitive impairment was 1.53 with a 95% confidence interval between 1.2 and 1.9. Also very strong. But the strongest was actually between in people who had metabolic syndrome and mild cognitive impairment, which was 2.95 with a confidence interval between 1.23 and 7.05. So this is pretty, pretty, um, you know, pretty strong evidence here. And the conclusion was that diabetes and metabolic syndrome were both associated with increased incidence of dementia when coexisting with mild cognitive impairment. So this is a very strong study. Again, it's, it's a meta-analysis. So it looked at 12 double blinded randomized controlled trials from all over the world. They, the countries involved were, uh, France, Sweden, UK, Italy, China, and let's see what else we have here, Netherlands and Singapore. So very, very, you know, very diverse set of patients here. Um, so this is very strong evidence. The only thing I would say with this study, the flaw was that they, they only studied patients that had already mild cognitive impairment. So it, they didn't study patients with that with completely normal cognitive abilities. But, but still, it, it, st it still shows that there is an association between, you know, diabetes, insulin resistance, and, and developing dementia. So it's a very strong study. Yeah, that's a great, uh, interesting study there. I think for future podcasts, you know, I think uh, I want to talk a little bit about mental health and nutrition and how foods can help with um, anxiety, depression, 
obviously dementia is a, a type of mental health so moving forward here um we're going to finish the podcast talking about nutrition and what foods are good for diabetes and blood sugar regulation what foods are not so good what foods are red flags that we should avoid completely and um, so i'm going to start off with uh, a common misconception that a lot of people have and that is that carbohydrates are not sugars so some you know i think a lot of people have that misconception that carbs are carbs sugars are sugars protein is protein fat is fat but uh, joseph can you explain how carbohydrates can be detrimental to or excess carbohydrates can be detrimental to a diabetic patient yeah so i just want to take a step back for a second and you know reintroduce the concept of macronutrients so as i mentioned previously there, there are three different types of macronutrients one is carbohydrates the second is fats and the third is protein so all three you know stimulate insulin release from the pancreas and like i mentioned the one the group that actually stimulates it the most is carbohydrates however not not all carbohydrates are created equal guys there, there's there's many many things to, to keep in mind with this so a carbohydrate there are many different types uh, i'll give you an example so fruits are technically considered carbohydrates uh, bread is a carbohydrate rice potatoes Vegetables actually consider carbohydrates, uh, and Oreos are carbohydrate. <laughs> so, do you do you guys think these are all the same? What do you think, Sam? I think not even close. Yeah, so they're all carbohydrates, but yet they're very different. So that's something to keep in mind when we talk about carbohydrate metabolism and insulin, and you know, developing diabetes. So I want to introduce a concept called glycemic index. So glycemic index is a system of assigning a number to carbohydrate-containing foods according to how much each food increases blood sugar, which in turn is a proxy for how much insulin is released. So if, with this in mind, you know, the higher the glycemic index is of a food, the more you're going to stimulate insulin. And as I told you, the more you stimulate insulin, the worse, is, the worse off you are in terms of developing diabetes, overall health, and so on. So... What macronutrient has the highest glycemic index, Sam? What macronutrient? Probably yeah, carbohydrates. Fats, carbohydrates, okay? Now, within the carbohydrate, if you were to double-click on carbohydrate, you're going to get a new screen. And there's many different types of carbohydrates. I, I like to find them between processed and unprocessed or refined. Now, vegetables are not processed. They're, they're whole foods fruits they're natural uh you know rice certain breads depends how you make them very important can be processed or unprocessed uh so there's different types so you know and they all have different glycemic index and indices um for example if you eat a piece of bread the glycemic index for bread is gonna be much higher than the vegetable even though they're both carbohydrates but the glycemic index is, is much higher for for a piece of bread or pasta very, very high glycemic index. Again, that's going to really spike your insulin, which is not what we want. So the way I explain to patients what foods to avoid is you, you have to have some knowledge of, of what is a glycemic index of every food. Okay. Now, I'm not a proponent that, you know, carbohydrates are all bad. I, I don't think that's true. I think you want to limit carbohydrates. I, I don't think you should have a diet that consists mainly of carbohydrates. Uh, I think the ratios that we're told are actually not correct, but 
I, I'm not a proponent of no carbs. I, I think that's not safe. And I don't think that's also healthy necessarily. Um, so, you know, we do have to include some carbohydrates. We just have to be smart regarding what types of carbohydrates. So I typically recommend patients to avoid foods that are processed pretty much. So what's processed? Processed is anything that has more than one ingredient. So when you go to the supermarket and you read the ingredients, if you start seeing five names that you don't know the names of, consider that processed. Means that that was processed in the factory. That's what it was, that's what means that's what process means means that it came from a factory. It was processed. It's not natural. So if you can't recognize the ingredients, then don't eat it. That's my rule of thumb. If it comes in a box, don't eat it. If it comes in a wrapper, don't eat it. Because it's processed. The other thing to keep in mind is anything that's white sugar, flour, those things, you also want to avoid that. Those are called refined carbohydrates. Those are, those are really, really bad. Those really, really spike your insulin. They have the highest glycemic indices. Uh, so that's the framework that I typically tell patients regarding, you know, what diet to have. Um, you know, we'll have future episodes where we talk a little bit about the different diets. But in terms of diabetes, you really want to have a diet that's low glycemic index that, you know, that incorporates actually a lot of protein. Uh, I typically recommend one gram of protein per, per weight, per pound of weight and equal, equal ratio of fat. So the same thing. So one to one ratio of fat and protein. And carbohydrates, 50 to 100 grams a day is what I recommend, okay? 50 now, to 100 grams yeah, of carbohydrates a day? 50 to 100 grams. And yeah. then protein, based on how much you weigh, one gram weigh. per body weight. Yeah, so if you're 170 pounds, then you want at least 170 grams of protein per day. And then the fats and carbohydrates? Fat, fat is the same, so 170 grams of fat. I know, I know what you're thinking, guys. Fat is bad for you. Guess what? It's not bad for you. It's actually very healthy. You need it for, for for hormone production, right? Yeah, you need it. Again, there's good fats and there's bad fats and there's processed fats. And again, we, we, we come back to the same thing. We want it to be whole foods, so not processed. So let me give you an example. An avocado is that's a type of fat. What type of fat is it? It's monosaturated. So very, very, very healthy for you. Okay? Um... Well, I was going to tell you, olive oil, that's a type of fat. It's been shown to be beneficial. Yeah. So it's, it's not just that, you know, the, the, the concept of fat being bad for you is so misleading. Uh, it's just not true. But I don't want to get, I don't want to get too into the weeds right now. I, let's just focus on carbohydrates. You know, avoid high glycemic foods. Stick with whole foods. So what about, much. what about uh, the, ch the breakfast of champions, the Wheaties? cereal for breakfast what about uh what about that what do you think about cereal for breakfast well i think it's a terrible idea to be honest with you um i'm not against breakfast uh you can eat breakfast or you can not eat breakfast depends on how you arrange your fasting window but cereal is actually one of the highly highly processed processed foods that we have it's um it's not good for you and actually, I'll include that on uh, on my food list that I never eat and I never recommend anybody eat cereal. It's not good for you. Yeah, it's probably not not the best way to start your day with an insulin spike in the morning, especially with the increased cortisol levels in the morning. Yeah, that's a lot. And then of you stress. add a glass of orange juice, and then that makes it even worse. Yeah, processed sugars, added sugars. You gotta look at. You gotta read the ingredients, guys. The nutrition labels. Gotta make sure we know what and, we're taking yeah. into our bodies. And if you don't understand it, 
you should you probably shouldn't be eating it because if it gets too complicated, a banana is a banana. You don't need an ingredient list, right? But if you if you're eating something that you you're reading, you're like you know I don't know what this is. Don't eat it. It's pro it's probably processed. Right. Okay, guys. So we spoke about a lot of things today, and uh, we're gonna quickly summarize. But my summary is just gonna be like I said in the beginning. Don't always trust what you see. Even salt looks like sugar. You know, there's a lot of misconceptions out there. You know, I want you guys to make your own opinions. Look at the evidence, look at quality evidence. Um, you know, do your due diligence for yourself. And uh, don't don't always trust what, what your doctor is telling you. You know, you know, make sure that you're asking the right questions and make sure that they they have your best interest. So, Joe, can you uh, give us a quick summary today? Yeah, so I, we spoke a lot about different things today, and I think that, you know, it's a little overwhelming for the listener, but if I were to give you a list of things to do to prevent diabetes, you know, I would say the number one thing would be to incorporate some sort of intermittent fasting into, into your routine. So ideally, 16 to 18 hours of fasting window per day. You want to avoid processed food. You want to avoid refined carbohydrates. You want to be exercising frequently, which includes high-intensity interval training, uh, stability training, uh, aerobic exercising, and, and resistance training. Um, you really, really, really need to get a C-peptide and a fasting insulin level checked every single year. Because if this is not checked, you could be insulin resistant for years and then all of a sudden develop diabetes. Okay, so this is very important. Um, all the questions that I get from patients frequently is, you know, when they start intermittent fasting, a lot of them do report feeling fatigued or having headaches in the beginning, which is normal. So I recommend taking a daily magnesium tablet of 400 to 600 milligrams a day and make sure that you hydrate well um, during the fast. Uh, it's completely safe to exercise during a fast, but please consult with your physician before starting anything we discussed in this podcast. So thank you, Joseph. Uh, thank you all for listening to the Soto Health and Wellness Podcast today. If you like our content, please subscribe on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Apple Music. Feel free to email us with any comments or questions at thesotohwp at gmail.com. That's thesotohwp at gmail.com. We will see you on the next episode. Be well.